you can be familiar with something and at the same time not deeply understand it. Take a car, for example. I am very familiar with cars. I am the last person you would ever want to ask about the inner workings of cars, how they're put together. I hope none of you are a mechanic that would want to take advantage of me. I think that's true of other things. I mean, how many of us, maybe for me, for years, have some basic familiarity with uh, maybe the church, but have never thought deeply and robustly, biblically about different aspects of the church's life? Heaven or love? I wonder what comes to mind when you think about love. Much of the common wisdom of our world today is that love is subjected. Love is never to be questioned. Love only affirms, love never contradicts. There's much of our world that thinks that who you love or what you love is not a matter for debate. We widely understand we're to be loved on our own terms. How we perceive we need to be loved. Not not necessarily how we need to be loved, which we may not perceive, but how we desire. I want to suggest to you that we live in a world since the fall that is profoundly confused about love. For all that many in this world do not know about the Bible... People do seem to know that in some way God loved the world. That is God's job, isn't it? To love. And yet, God's love cannot be understood apart from the cross. This morning, after a few weeks out of John's gospel, we go back into John's gospel Specifically, John chapter 13. So go to the New Testament, the book of John. The big number is the chapter 13, and the small numbers are the verses. We're going to read the first 17 chapters, uh, verses. We're not going to read 17 chapters, but verses. A few weeks ago, we left chapter 12, and we saw there that despite all of Jesus' teaching and signs, that unbelief persisted. We saw the culmination of his signs and the greatest sign. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But now, here Jesus, rejected by the Jews, very intentionally turns to his own, to teach his own about love. What does Jesus have to teach us about love? Look down at John beginning... Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. You should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. This is a passage fundamentally about love. And here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Jesus must love you in a way you do not expect. Jesus must love you in a way you do not expect to free you to love as you were meant, to free you to love as you were or are meant. We're going to see this in three parts in this text this morning. First, we're going to see love's demonstration. Love's demonstration, L-O-V-E apostrophe S, demonstration. Verses 1 through 5. We turn here from Jesus' ministry out in the world to his ministry to his own. And for much of this gospel, the, the hour of Jesus' death has been in the future. But here we learn the hour had come. So what happens in this passage, the love that Jesus visibly demonstrates is done in the context of the cross. It's the cross, it's the hour that is looming large over this dinner, 
It's looming large over every action that Jesus is taking. Jesus is doing everything here deliberately in light of the cross. And it's precisely, we read in verse 1, because Jesus knew the hour had come, that he intentionally, he purposely loved his own in the world until the end. So notice there's a distinction between the world and those who are Jesus' own in the world. His own here refers to his disciples. He's with them. He's determined to love them in ways and ultimately in a way they could never fathom. So the demonstration of his love was not just done in the context of the cross. It's also done in the context of this new messianic community, his 12 disciples. They would make him known to the world. They would be the ones upon whom this new community, the church, would be built. John says he loved them to the end. And that's kind of the overarching statement of this passage. Jesus' love is a fleshing out, a demonstration of his love and its effect. What's happening here? As Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, he's purposely loving his own in ways they were not prepared for, to prepare them for what would be the most visible display of his love. On the cross. As we look at this very pivotal moment between Jesus and his disciples, you're meant to wrestle with the way you understand love. How easy it is for people who know nothing of God or the God of the Bible to just say God is love. Certainly God loves, but the scriptures say God is love. In saying that, love is not a separate thing from God. It's not merely something God does. Love is part of God's being within the three persons of the Godhead. It cannot be said of a single person God. God is love because such a God would have to create in order to give love or to receive love. But within the triune Godhead, he is love because he's been giving and receiving love, totally satisfied within the love within his own being since eternity past. God's love is wholly different from the love of fickle, fallen human beings. So to truly know and understand love, we must know the true God. Notice one aspect of his love is that it does distinguish. He demonstrates his love to his own, the 12, the pillars of the community brought about by the cross. Jesus is very deliberately teaching his own here what cross-shaped, cross-purchased, cross-centered love looks like and why it is necessary. In the context of the cross, in the context of the new messianic community. And he also demonstrates his love in the context of satanic power and opposition. At this dinner, 
there was more going on than met the eye. In verse 2, we learn that the devil had been at work in the heart of Judas Iscariot, such that he would betray Jesus. Jesus is not just headed toward his own death. We learn he is headed toward a very costly betrayal. It's been so rightly said that only a friend can betray a friend. Jesus loved in the midst of satanic opposition. The love that he will show his own is is costly. He's opposed by the very one who opposed Adam and Eve, Satan himself. So many in this gospel have been blind to the true identity of Jesus. Satan is not. From his work in tempting him all the way to the cross, Satan opposed this man. And so Jesus, to carry out this love, will do so fully knowledgeable of the intense opposition he faces. The love he demonstrates is hard won, hard fought for. It's not cheap. It's costly. For Jesus, when the going got tough, Jesus kept loving. We have this contrast Verse 2 and verse 3 between the devil and the person of Jesus. Jesus, who knows it is hour to depart this world and return to the Father, is approaching. Same Jesus, who knows the Father has given all things to his hands, that he's come from God, and that he will return to God. Don't read past that quickly. Don't just overlook that. All things were given into his hands. If you have the NIV version, it says he knew all things had been put under his power. Jesus has the greatest power. And the fact that he comes from God and will return to God tells us of his rank. Jesus has the highest rank. We will never understand the greatness of the love of Jesus, the love he demonstrates, until we perceive the greatness of the one who gives it. All things into his hands, all things under his power includes Satan. And what does Jesus do with this power? What does he do with his Rank. Nothing like we would expect. He could have, but did he destroy Satan immediately? No, because he will defeat him by his own loving through the horror of the cross. He's demonstrating a love unlike love we're so familiar with in this world. This is costly love. His love is not meant to be understood apart from his person. If if you're like me, you're very surprised when someone that you know is much greater than you shows any interest in you, shows any love to you. I mean, if someone in this world with any power, great fame, not just 
maybe stopped to take a picture with you, but honestly sat down and got to know you, cared about you, how surprised would you be? Because of the distance between their power and their fame and ordinary us, we don't expect them to have any interest in us. And here we're being told Jesus has all power and the highest rank. We're seeing how different Jesus is from the great ones of our world. The demonstration of this love teaches us much about our own God, who he is in his essence and person. When he freely sets his love on his own, his love comes with the fullness of his person. His love is self-giving. His love for his own because of sin is costly. He demonstrates this love in the midst of the opposition of the greatest unseen being in the universe. This revelation of his love is giving us deep insight into who our God is. Here is love, vast as the ocean, demonstrated by the one who holds and upholds the oceans in his hands. And what did the one who has the greatest power and highest rank do to demonstrate his love? Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. People walked in that day. Feet washing was necessary when you arrived at someone's house. non Jewish slaves washed people's feet. What does Jesus do? John rehearses this undressing ritual in verse 4 to make very clear how Jesus visibly took the form of a servant. He meant for those there, he meant for us to see him visibly taking this form to understand the full context of the demonstration of his love. He lowers himself beyond the rank, not that he earned, but that was rightfully his from all eternity. He does for his own, not what they deserve, but what they desperately need him to do, that they never had the right to demand. There are ways... We can be loved that make us very uncomfortable. Jesus is teaching his disciples, you need to be loved in a very uncomfortable way. He deliberately dresses in the form of a servant and he washes his disciples' feet. The love of Jesus is not mere sentiment. The love of Jesus takes a very concrete form. He does not consider his power and his position to be taken advantage of, to to be used in its fullness for the good of others. How different is his love? You're meant to be pushed 
to move beyond any shallow idea you have of the love of Jesus and to marvel at the substance, the shape, the depth that he demonstrates in his love. The one who laid his garments aside, takes the towel, ties it around his waist in order to appear as a servant before his disciple washed their feet. All of them, no exceptions. Now, how often do you simply think about the greatness of the love Jesus demonstrated toward his own? How often do you ponder the greatness of the one who demonstrated his love in this way? And how much we don't deserve this love. This is God the Son who had received the worship of angels, who lowered himself to look up at his disciples as he washed their feet. When he went to the cross, he wanted his disciples prepared to have the context and the framework for the kind of love, the kind of glory in which its extravagance is seen in its humility to meet the deepest need of the undeserving. Think about how carefully Jesus would have planned this. How deliberate he was to wash and wipe their feet so that they, his disciples, and any one of us who would follow in their footsteps would understand the depth and the dimension and the demonstration of his love. Here is love's demonstration. Second, love's cleansing. Love's cleansing, verses 6 through 11. were surprised by feet washing. They weren't, but they were surprised by this. In their culture, this was very normal when you arrived at someone's house. It never took place during dinner. This would have only added to the shock and the discomfort of what was happening in that room that night. I think if we take some imaginative license... We can imagine the awkward silence in the room. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. They felt this gap between his authority and this demeaning act he was subjecting himself to. I think the wholly unusual nature of what's happening is clear there in verse 6. When Simon Peter, I think, gives voice to what everyone else was thinking. When he asked in disbelief, Lord, do you wash my feet? He knew Jesus was above this. He's embarrassed. How can you, so much greater than me, lower yourself to do what is not done by a respectable person in respectable company? This distance felt too great For Peter. And it's all wrapped up in this question that has the sense of, Lord, do you wash my feet? In the United States, there was a 
maybe it's still going, I don't know, a popular show called Undercover Boss. And in this show, you would have a high-level CEO, uh, say of a construction company or maybe a manufacturing company. Uh, they, would, they would be disguised, and they would anonymously slip into the lower level of employees in the company in order to see the company and even themselves through their eyes. Audience is aware of this. Those within the show are, are not. And generally in the show, they do all kinds of very low-level tasks. Part of the humor is they're not very good at them. And they learn how those in the lower ranks of the company see the company and the boss as he gets them to freely speak throughout the episode. Of course, the, the big ending, the big reveal is the end when the boss unveils his or her true identity. He has some kind of epiphany. Everything's going to be different moving forward. Count me a cynic. But for their, their part, those who were unknowingly working with the CEO are shocked to learn that the CEO would lower themselves to work among them, to do something so beneath their position. And they all hug and presumably live happily ever after. Why does the show work? Because it's based on a premise that is shocking in any one of our cultures. You realize bosses could do this without a reality show. They wouldn't get as much publicity for their brand, but they could do it. And yet what was happening in that room that night at that dinner was a far greater condescension as Jesus lowered himself to do what ought not to be done. Peter knew it. The others knew it. What they didn't know was how much lower Jesus was going to go. Lord, do you wash my feet. So Jesus responds in verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Remember, we've seen this before. We see it again in John's gospel. There is misunderstanding that will only be understood on the other side of the cross. What's he doing? He is preparing his disciples for the cross. He is preparing them for the cleansing that is coming. They fundamentally do not understand that their Messiah must go to the cross. And so he carries out this symbolically rich act that prepares them and foreshadows the cross. And so in embarrassment, Peter responds to Jesus with objection. Instead of enjoy, he should have responded by faith. Peter does not understand what or why he is doing because Peter at this point does not understand the depth to which he needs to be loved. There is a familiarity, there is a comfort you can have with Jesus as long as you keep him out there. As long as he's at a safe distance from you, he's not intrusive. But here is Jesus who intends to come very near to wash those who would be his own very personally, intrusively, 
You can hear it in Peter's response. You will never wash my feet. That would have been an acceptable response in many other social settings, not this one. Jesus knows that if he and the others cannot accept his self-abasing, humiliating feet washing, they will never be able to accept the cross. To be a disciple of Jesus is to understand at your core, you need to be loved in a very embarrassing way. It is to understand that there is filth much grosser, much more offensive than your feet that needs to be addressed and cleansed. This is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's to joyfully admit, it is to be wonderfully free and confident in receiving love that cleanses you at a depth that you and I are not naturally comfortable with. That's why it requires supernatural grace to receive this love. The gospel, the cleansing that it brings is not socially acceptable. It's not socially respectable. It requires us to see just how deeply and fully, and if I may, embarrassingly, we need Jesus to clean us. In that room, Jesus was up close and personally preparing each disciple for the reality that it will only be by his surprising humiliation that he will cleanse them in order to bring about their deepest liberation. Cleansing. The disciples do not know it, but Jesus knows they need this. This foot washing is not merely about foot washing. Behind Peter's statement is the reality that he has no idea how deeply he needs to be loved and to be served. So Jesus wants for Peter and the rest and anyone who would follow Jesus to understand, verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It's double meaning. Yes, he expected them to receive his feet washing, but he was saying something much more profound, wasn't he? Unless I take away your sin, unless I cleanse you, I wash you at your deepest level spiritually, you have no part with me. If you're to know me, if you're to have a part with me, you must know my cleansing. He's making it explicitly clear why he has come. This awkwardness of Jesus taking the form of a servant would be nothing compared to the awkwardness of him taking the form of a servant all the way to the cross, humiliated to take judgment there that we would not be humiliated, that we would not be put to shame on the final day. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot cleanse our own sin, but Jesus can. And by his own righteous life and sacrificial death, this is what he has done on the cross. Now ask yourself if we would ever make up a God this good. Would we make this story up? A salvation this amazing and wonderful and loving and just all at the same time? Or did God have to reveal it? 
that Jesus had to carefully prepare his disciples for it. Just as he lowered himself to wash their feet, he was going to lower himself, despising all shame, to go to the cross. And it's his humiliation that leads to his resurrection and his exaltation to heaven itself. And what is Jesus now doing with all of his power and all of his rank in heaven? He stands ready to save. He pities sinners. He rules in power. Has Jesus washed you? Has he washed your sin? Or do you keep him away? Thinking you can do this without him. In your own power. Come to Jesus repenting in confidence and in faith that Jesus Christ will receive you and he will cleanse you to the uttermost. I want you brothers and sisters to see from this that Jesus sets the terms for us, for our union with him, unless I wash you. No part with me. It's his salvation. It's on his terms. Your salvation was done on God's terms and by his initiative. Unless I wash you, what God initiates, he accomplishes. For Peter, wonderfully, whatever he didn't understand, in response to Jesus, verse 9, he responds with an unrestrained joy and willingness. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head it's a kind of joy that you can hear from him that is just saying, whatever I, I need to do, I want to have a part with you, Jesus. It's as if he's no longer concerned what is socially comfortable. He simply wants to be with Jesus. What was it that overcame his embarrassment and his awkwardness, his self-regard? It was his desperation to be with Jesus. Not just my feet. All of me. Jesus had opened Peter up. He had graciously destroyed that pride that kept Jesus at a, a safe distance. Some of you keep Jesus at a distance. And you know he's at a distance. And he's saying very clearly to you through his word, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Unless you let him come near and in to cleanse you at your deepest level, no part of me. And until that becomes good news to you, you remain outside of him. Jesus is the only one who, when he comes near to us and sees the worst part of us, does not use it to shame us, but to save us and to cover us. Brothers and sisters, have you lost this joy of being cleansed? Think and meditate and bring to mind the greatness of the one who watched you. The depth of this washing. You don't ever repeat that initial cleansing. How full it must be. But you do grow deeper in it. As we go on with Christ, we learn more, hopefully, of the glory and the greatness of our salvation so rather than it being some dry, abstract reality, when we understand the doctrine of salvation, the complexity and the glory of the love of God, from God choosing us from before the foundation of the world to the work he did effectively on the cross, 
to the providential ways that he preserves us. He draws us. We grow in joy. We grow in sobriety. We grow in praise and response as we understand our God's love. Don't think much about your love for Christ. Think much about his love for you. Right knowing affects right feeling. We're cleansed by him and his love. And yet he says there's need for more. What he's saying there in verse 10, when he says the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, he's teaching for this ongoing need to be cleansed even after we've been fundamentally, salvifically cleansed by Jesus. So in salvation, we're cleansed from our sin, but there is still need for ongoing repentance to be cleansed from sins we do commit. Sins that do not affect our salvation or our standing with God, but can affect our communion with the Lord or our usefulness in the Lord's kingdom. So we need ongoing cleansing on the road of discipleship. He cleansed them, and yet they need continual cleansing. Yet not all of them were clean. He knew who would betray him. Think of that. He washed all of their feet, even Judas. He taught Judas, and Judas wasn't clean. From this, we learn that familiarity and even proximity to Jesus, even hearing his teaching, does not guarantee that you have a part of Jesus. His feet were washed, but he wasn't cleansed. All of this will become clear after the cross. That room, that night, Jesus showed through that act the depth to which he will go to cleanse his own. Love's cleansing. And it's only when his disciples understood that does he hold out his love as an example. That's the third point, love's example. Love's example, verses 12 through 17. He puts his normal clothes back on, no longer in a servant's dress. It's only then does he ask in verse 12, do you understand what I've done for you? If you don't understand, you cannot follow his example. He's done for them what he alone must do. So if you think of this first and foremost only as an example, you're like Peter who says, you shall never wash my feet. Why? Because you're trying to clean yourself up. He and love must cleanse you before the example. So there's an eternal difference between loving and serving others because you've already been loved rather than loving and serving others in order to be loved or even worse, to prove you're worthy of love. He takes the initiative to cleanse before he gives the command. He rebuked Peter before he called Peter and the others to his example. This is Jesus's work. And then it becomes our work. So only one with Jesus's power and authority can cleanse us in the way we need and then empower us to follow him in this way. His logic in verses 13 to 14 is clear. If I as your teacher and Lord, if I as one who's greater has washed your feet, wash one another's feet. For he's given the example to do as he has done. They would soon see the fullness of his lordship and his exaltation to heaven. 
But here is his love as an example. If the one who is greater has done this, so should those who are lesser. First, I want you to understand what this is not, what it's not. He was not instituting feet washing as a sacrament, as some believe. There is no evidence this is practiced in the church anywhere else in the New Testament. He was clearly demonstrating saving love up close and personal to his disciples and then setting for them the kind of example of selfless service and preference for others as more important than themselves. To formalize this as a sacramental practice or ceremony strangely undermines the very provocative and surprising nature of it. It's far easier, isn't it, to practice a formal ritual while your heart is far from the act itself than to just genuinely humble yourself and serve others. So how should we understand this? Well, first, we cannot overlook the powerful new community he was forming by this. He's creating a community where each person of the community has been personally, powerfully cleansed by him. It's not a community formed by human wisdom or effort or initiative, but his. Each person in the community is being cleansed at the deepest level such that each one is free to serve one another at a depth that no other community on the planet can. So in this community, when you've been cleansed by Jesus, you've been cleansed such that you're free to take away your facade. Quit acting like all is okay. Jesus creates this, not us. In the church, what we do is we make visible what Jesus has done invisibly in each of us. By his work, his power, he created this community. And that's what makes the church compelling. Only in the gospel is the order this way. This transforms the way we see every local expression of the church. That's why we want this reality to constantly be at the forefront of our sight and our life together because we are so easily tempted to underestimate the importance and the glory of the church. Whatever town you see God's true church in, where the gospel is proclaimed and loved and protected and displayed, she is never the sideshow. To what's happening there. She is at the very center of God's glory and purposes for his work. Second, this example means we really are to serve one another in ways that are radically different from the world. We are to wash each other's feet. And you know this means much more than washing each other's feet. And I want to argue to you that this starts and is prioritized locally. It's easy to love and to serve Christians in other places out there, not against this. But that is completely undermined when it does not characterize your life locally with the flesh and the blood Christians right around you, whom the risen Christ has sovereignly put you into relationship with. It's these Christians that you have to persevere with. It's these Christians that you'll be offended by. You will hurt and be hurt by. It's these Christians who will get on your nerves. Won't be interesting to you. 
that makes this example so powerful and so much harder to follow and at the same time gives your love a concrete form and shape. One way the church helps you do this is through covenant relationship with each other. You come into covenant with people that are not like you, not that you would have picked based on what you like or are interested in. You, You move beyond just a Sunday morning here you start to intertwine your life with people that you wouldn't have done so. You, you commit to them. You commit to people you don't even know because of the gospel of Jesus Christ who's cleansed you and who's cleansed them and put you into relationship with them. What do we do in this world? We test things out. We get to know people before we really make a commitment. But in the gospel, Christ commits himself to us fully, and so we are in community. We are in commitment to his people, and we express that in local churches. What a privilege we have to do this here in this body, to serve and love those we're in covenant relationship with. From this, are there any ways you need to readjust the way you see the members of this church? Or maybe you need to re-examine your own sense of self. Jesus took the form of a servant to wash the feet of his own. How does that free us to serve? Not for gain, but because in Jesus, we've been given everything. Does that characterize you? Does it characterize you as someone who's humble and helpful to others? Or do you just engage here on your own terms? What's comfortable to you? Your priorities. You know, a sign of real maturity, of real maturing as a Christian is genuinely being concerned for the growth and the good of other Christians, even when it costs you or it puts your priorities second place. I can't imagine how this affected the disciples for the rest of their lives. They would understand after the cross and the resurrection what the world's true king was like, what his kingdom is like, that he he didn't come to conquer the world by power, but he did so in weakness. And so they too would actually go on to lay down their lives in weakness to serve. They would proclaim to the world a foolish gospel of a king and a kingdom who lowered himself to save filthy sinners. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Do you and I expect more in our own lives? Do we expect more in our ministries than we are expecting more than the master and the savior who saved us? He's loved us in a way we never expected to free us to love as we were meant. In his kingdom, the way up is down. It's not by going up the front staircase. It is by finding the staircase in the back of the house and descending. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.